back, everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, my co-host, Victoria Monday, and down in the chat room, Quarantine Ghosts Haunting the Chat. We have a fantastic guest coming up uh, with us or visiting us this evening, Arlen Schumer. This guy is, you know, I've, I've been watching his webinars the last couple of days. Amazing, amazing guy. Uh, he's an award-winning comic book style uh, illustrator for advertising and editorial markets and a member of the Society of Illustrators. Uh, he's an author, designer of coffee table art books, including Visions from the Twilight Zone and the Silver Age of Comic Book Art, uh, which won the Independent Book Publishers Award for Best Popular Culture Book. Uh, and he's also a recognized expert on American pop culture, especially legendary television shows, series, The Twilight Zone, and also the music of Bruce Springsteen. So we're going to get into all of these things this evening. Arlen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Mike. And hi, Victoria. Hi. Great meeting you guys. I'm so excited. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as we do with all of our guests, you know, we you know, want to give our uh, viewers a little bit of an idea of who you are, your background. So kind of give them, uh, you know, your origin story, how you got started in this business and really what inspires you. Wow. How far do you want me to go back? To the first <laughs> I can recall as a child. Yeah, you know, right from the womb till now, you know. No, but I'm saying that was a pretty (laughs) wide-spanning question. But basically, yeah, my very first visual image is the black and white Twilight Zone eyeball in space. Mm -hmm. My very first cinematic image, also about five years old, is Sean Connery in the first Bond movie, Dr. No. And I didn't have a father. My mother was a widow. My father died when I was four months old. So I ended up finding my surrogate father figures in the pop culture itself. Sean Connery, Rod Serling of the Twilight Zone, very much of a father figure. The superheroes, the comic books, I then discovered in summer camp. Superman and Batman and the Justice League of America, all that. But, you know, those superheroes taught me, along with Rod Serling and and pop culture, all those classic things like good versus evil, right versus wrong, when to stand up for what you believe in and fight for what you believe in. And I glean those things from that pop culture bullion base that was the 1960s. One of the most obviously creative explosions of American pop culture probably ever in the history of America. And, you know, we're still living with the repercussions of all that culture. So I've taken my childhood loves and as a pop culture historian, re- recontextualized them as, as either coffee table art books or live lectures before the pandemic. Now I'm doing webinars, uh, articles. Anything I've done is basically taking the things that influenced me to become an artist, to become a graphic designer, to become a writer and um, I followed my bliss, as Joseph Campbell, you know, once said. I followed, I ended up working for my childhood idol, Neil Adams, one of the greatest, the greatest living Batman artists. When I was a kid, to my generation of comic book fans, he was one of the gods of comic book art. And I ended up working for him in his studio when I got out of art school. Now, if you had told me at 12 years old, when I was at the you know peak of my Neil Adams' God phase, Arlen, one day you'll be working for Neil Adams. You'll be penciling for him and he'll be inking you. I would have had a 12-year-old adolescent heart attack right there. 
So I've, you know, I'm lucky to say I, I was able to work for my childhood idol. And, you know, I knew I was 25 years old, a couple of years out of art school, wrote on school design, where I only went to because a comic book artist named Walt Simonson came out of it when I was in high school with this radical new style for superhero comics. And I, I didn't even know of Rodan School Design. I was in high school in Fairlawn, New Jersey. But I knew I might want to go to art school or a university with a good art department. And I see this guy's radical new style, and they say he's a recent graduate from Rodan School Design. And I'm like, if they could turn out a guy like Walt Simonson, that's where I'm going to go. So I ended up going. But then once I got there, I found out the graphic design department was actually considered maybe the greatest in the country. Oh, wow. I didn't know what graphic design was, but it was verbal visual communication. Comics are verbal visual communication. The great advertising, print advertising, traditional print was a headline with an image, you know, all the stuff, but basically comics were words and pictures working together. That's what graphic design, our whole world is graphic design. Look, the thing behind you, somebody had to oh, sure. design that logo behind, everything behind me, everything behind Valerie. Yeah, uh, Victoria, my <laughs> point is, is that, I know, see, now I'm gonna make that mistake all the time. <laughs> you hadn't corrected me the first time, I would have never got wrong. Now it's like fixed in my head, okay. <laughs> I got to think of the King song, Victoria, <laughs> Victoria. That's a tough uh, harmony to do. Okay, where was I? <laughs> script girl, script girl. Well, let me ask you this. Ooh, I used to be a script girl. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> keeping track of where we were. I got interrupted by mispronouncing Victoria's name. <laughs> Is that um, Space Ghost behind hey, you? I'm trying to look at your okay. wall. Where are you looking? On your wall uh, back there? Is that Space Ghost? Superman. You got Batman over there. And the wire that's right the there, Spectre. that's Superman? The Spectre. Ah, okay. It's also behind me over here. And look, I have the Spectre little statuette. Oh, there you, you see? go. By the uh, way, created by the same guy that created Superman, Jerry Siegel, the writer. Mm -hmm. Also oh, created the Spectre. Yeah. And the Spectre was originally supposed to be this kind of angel of death kind of thing. That's why he's white, you see? Ah, nice. Can you tell me about the silver? Yeah. Can you tell me about the silver surfer? Is he good? Is he bad? What is he? He's just a man out there surfing in the universe. What's okay. Well, well, what do you know of the silver surfer to say that you think he might be bad? I've always heard he was bad, but it seems like he surfed by in some movie, and he was pretty cool. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, he's an outsider. He's not from the earth, and he was the mm -hmm. herald of Galactus. These were the creations of Jack Kirby. The right. artist storyteller who created really the foundation of Marvel Comics. Stan Lee was the editor and he dialogued and wrote captions to Kirby's stories. I really don't believe Lee created really anything. That doesn't mean he's not, you know, half responsible for the success of Marvel, but it doesn't mean he actually created anything. I think Kirby and the other guys like Steve Ditko, who created Spider Man and Doctor Strange, I think they were the visual and storytelling creators. But this gets into a whole other subject. <laughs> but getting back to the Silver Surfer, Jack Kirby created him to be a herald for Galactus. Galactus was Kirby's concept of God. Mm -hmm. And as a quote villain in the story, even though Galactus was kind of amoral in a way, he was supposed to be Tabula Raza, and he needed to devour the energies of worlds to live. So he was like a shark in a way. You can't blame a shark for being a shark. 
So right. Galactus was an earth eater that, or a, a world eater. Mm -hmm. And he used the Silver Surfer as his herald to be like point man scouting out worlds that he could come and suck the energies. But the Silver Surfer who represents in Kirby's mind, the kind of fallen angel. Right relegated to earth because he ends up just like the mythological stories and the biblical stories of the gods or the angels that came and cohabitated supposedly with earth people. And there's that whole, the Nephilim and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Silver Surfer in his initial adventure comes to earth totally robotic, like Mr. Spock, you know, no emotion. And he ends up thanks to the blind woman, Alicia, who was the thing's girlfriend which is a whole interesting little sub story right there that only a blind woman can love the oh, thing no. who is the rocky orange, in a sense, monster. Um, but this is all, this all comes out of the soul and the spirit of Yaakov Kurtzberg, AKA Jack Kirby. Mm -hmm. He was what we call in Judaism, a mensch. He had a soul. He cared about people. He loved people. Right. And out of that love and care for people come these beautiful dimensions of characterization that he was able to imbue in his artwork that we're still talking about it 60 years later. So the Silver Surfer ends up befriending the earth people and defending them against his, his boss, Galactus. Mm -hmm. And for his disobedience, just like the mythological stories of Lucifer and Morningstar, Galactus banishes him to earth where he can't ever leave earth. And he goes on a series of adventures after that, not by Jack Kirby, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> the point is, so the Silver Surfer started out as this kind of robotic sentry that was just there to check out your world for Galactus. Mm -hmm. But because again, there was an essence of humanity in him. You know, Galactus does not look like a robot. Galactus, no. It looks like he's got flesh and he looks human, even though he's of gargantuan size. So again, you go back to the Bible, God, you know, has made man in his image. If, you know, that's the sort of concept there. So perhaps there was, that's the whole point of the silver surfer, that a blind woman from earth used love to touch this robotic kind of figure to touch whatever was in his soul, almost like an ember of humanity. And she fanned the flames with love. And that's what made the Silver Surfer turn into this um, uh, a very um, even Christ-like figure that he was banished to earth, but he was like a fallen angel and on earth and he would do his best to help humanity. So um, that became, but, Boy, does that answer your question? Yeah. Mike, yes, did I answer you. your question? Oh, that's great. And actually, I have a, a follow-up to that, because you mentioned a, a lot here about ancient mythology, the Bible. So how much of that uh, becomes a part of these comics? That you know, Were they a, another way of telling these old stories in a different sort of medium? Absolutely. They're our 20th century mythology. They're the yearnings and longings for heroes and models of heroism. I do a whole lecture I'm doing next month, a webinar, Jews and Comics, all about how all the original superheroes, the original, the comic book itself, the physical comic book, 
was created by Max Ginsburg, changed his name to Gaines. His son, Bill Gaines, started Mad Magazine. Oh, okay. So you see how yeah. that all yeah, see the tie becomes yeah. this domino of pop culture. And through Mad Magazine, you get modern American humor, post-war American humor, making fun of established institutions, comes out of Mad Magazine, Harvey Kurtzman. So these are all the Jews in comics, so to speak. But by the way, I also do a webinar called Christ in Comics. Why? Because all of these superheroes are basically reflections of the Christological ideal. They sacrifice themselves to save the people they love. They've got supernatural powers, but they use them in a sense for good against the evil. And sometimes they pay the ultimate price. So I do a whole webinar lecture about that. So, you know, I'm even handed in that sense, but the Jews and comics is coming up right before the Jewish new year. And yeah. part of that whole thing is that if you look at just Siegel and Schuster creating Superman in the mid thirties, there are, you know, sort of different tributaries of how he came up and why Siegel, the writer came up with the idea of Superman. On the one hand, his father died in a holdup, not even from the gunshot, but from the, the, the anxiety and the fright. And three years later, after Siegel loses his father that way to crime, he creates this angelic flying father figure to come down from heaven to, to be the ultimate father, which is Superman. Now, that's one way to look at it. Yeah. The other way is Siegel and Schuster were North American Jews. They, they were young, but what was happening in the 30s, rising fascism, anti-Semitism, right. Hitler. Not that anybody was totally aware of what was going on, but they sensed the drama. Now, plenty of great writers like, um, um, oh, what's his name? Um, he wrote Carnal Knowledge. Uh, Jules Pfeiffer who did the first comic book history book called The Great Comic Book Heroes. He's the first one in 1965, wrote an essay in Playboy about the early superheroes and said, Superman, it's not, he's not escaping from Krypton, he's escaping from Minsk, meaning the idea of the Jew leaving Holocaust to be Europe to come to the new world, that's the story of Jewish American assimilation in a nutshell. He adopts the ultimate Gentile disguise, Clark Kent. You know, he has right. this dual identity. Jews had to assimilate wherever they were kicked out of. In 1100, England kicked out their Jews, and they sent them to wherever, France. And then in 1400, France kicked out their Jews. And this is this was the plight of the European... Uh, I mean, I'm going off on a tangent here, but uh, I'm getting images of me instead of you. Uh, <laughs> Superman, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's very common that um, the 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 comic heroes um, were like father figures for? Because personally, I didn't really have a father growing up, and I identify. Don't laugh with Captain Kirk. Um, Why would I laugh? <laughs> because everyone else does. Have you seen? Well, I, we can talk about that. <laughs> I feel they're all totally wrong about Shatner and Kirk. Have you seen Free Enterprise? Free Enterprise? Yeah, no. it's an old movie. What is that? That's basically my life. Um, it's these little kids. They um, identify with Captain Kirk, and then they actually see him in a bookstore one day. And he's like, well, I'm the Some idol. links, I'll check it out. 
Uh, it's a movie. Yeah, I'll send them to you. But it's it's a hilarious movie. But um, they find Captain Kirk or William Shatner in a bookstore, and um, <laughs> they say, "Hey, can you come do my movie?" And he goes, "Well, yeah, if you'll put on my one-man play of um, Caesar or Shakespeare or something." Anyway, it's great. It's a rapping version of Julius Caesar. That's what it is. But it's a hilarious movie. But whenever I've said that before, you know, because Captain Kirk always, you know put everyone else's needs first. And, you know, he was- the captain is supposed to do. Yeah, it's like, you know, I don't, I'm don't. i not important, but I have my 432 people on board my ship. I have that's to, what a captain you know, yeah. and I'm gonna, that's kind of my parenting style too. You know, <laughs> we're gonna boldly well, go. <laughs> women are usually, I mean, you know, men are the quote breadwinner, but women are the captains of the family in a sense, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, the man is the, uh, who's the captain of yell orders to? The lieutenant or something? That's the husband. <laughs> Trust me, I was married 19 years. The woman is the captain of the household. <laughs> right? You know, it's funny. I worked in advertising as an art director, copywriter, and all the producers, you know, there were copywriters, account execs, they dealt with the client, and then there were the creatives, art directors, copywriters. But then there were the producers. Producers were the ones that when they said, okay, here's, you know, $500,000, make a 30-second commercial, based on the storyboard that the art director and copywriter came up with. But now you, the producer, have to assemble an entire crew to make the commercial, the real thing. Well, every producer I met, most of them are women, not men, women. (laughs) That's funny because when I was um, growing up, I wanted to be a producer. (laughs) I'm saying, why are women good producers? Because we run the household. That's my point. (laughs) Yeah. They're good at relationship within organization, keeping the thing going. Mm-hmm. See, we men, we're very single-minded. You know, we're like cavemen. We grunt. Tell us what to do. You know, when you send <laughs> us to the store to buy things, you know that cliche. Yeah. You can't leave it up to us. Right. You got to tell us what you want. Only the facts, ma'am. <laughs> and then that's it. That's how men operate. But in terms of, now, it doesn't mean there aren't good male producers, obviously. Mm-hmm. Plenty of men are great leaders, but women happen to be great producers. And they can produce, in a sense, anything, whether it's mm-hmm. children, whether it's government without getting political, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about women, there is a... Since we're talking about women, there is a question down in the chat room from joy h she's wondering if there are uh, if you have any cool stories about female superheroes you know it's funny every webinar i've done about complex superheroes it's all a boys thing it's male artists it's male characters that's because like every other medium in the world everything was male white dominated in the 50s and 60s right. and 70s even you know, thank God, you look out at the pop culture landscape now, it's filled with women and people of color, and thank God. That's the way Gene Roddenberry of your Star Trek envisioned it. That's what we grew up with in the pop culture we were reading and looking at was this utopian ideal of multiracial and ethnic things. We're finally, you know, doing it 50, 60 years later. But the point is, is the stuff that I grew up with is is all white male stuff. Now, I can't change that. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't female superheroes, blah, 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 blah. But listen, you believe we finally got a Wonder Woman movie in 2018? They finally figured out how to do Wonder Woman, the greatest female icon of all time? DC's never known what to do with Wonder Woman. 
They've got the greatest female icon and they don't know what to do with her. Now, it doesn't mean there haven't been some great stories and great artists doing it. Blah. I'm speaking in very general terms. Uh, that's uh, yeah, the exterior sounds. Um, the point is, is um, uh, there are now in the, when I grew up, comics were a boys club. Right. When complex stores started, it was always guys. But because the success of the movies, it's brought in a general and a lot of female audience. So now, pre-pandemic, when you went to a comic convention, it was at least half women, if not more women than men. Mm -hmm. And that's true also on the creative side. There are more women. They just announced the DC Comics, two female co-editors. They they nice. they had a house cleaning of the old guard, which were men, white men, and guess what? Two women are now on the editorial head of DC Comic. So, I would speak for only me, but I would say we wanted women in comics back then. But you know, for X number of reasons, like again, every other medium. But you know, mm -hmm. let me segue into Twilight Zone. Rod Serling for so many reasons was a visionary. And one of the ways he was a visionary vis-a-vis -vis women is that he cast women in starring roles on his Twilight Zone episodes who were independent women, living alone, traveling alone, being independent. This is in 1959, 60, 61. This is before Betty Friedan. This is before Cosmo. This is before Women's Lib. This is Serling, a man who had two daughters, putting women in dramatic star. They weren't screwball housewives. Mm -hmm. Twilight Zone didn't have screwball housewife episodes, but he had some of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes star women as independent. You know, one of the best episodes, Midnight Sun, um, Serling's uh, about, uh, it's kind of a global warming uh, preview of the earth moving closer to the sun. And it's, it, you know, it's going to get hot until people, you know, burn up. And the story centers on two women left alone in a New York City apartment building. One of them is the landlady, an older woman, and the other is a late 20s, early 30s, an independent artist in New York City alone. This is 1961. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. And it's dramatic. <laughs> it's an intense episode. It's great. But my point is, nobody else was doing this. Serling cast a black man in a dramatic role on Twilight Zone, a boxer. It was Ivan Dixon, the actor who would later be the, quote, black guy on Hogan's Heroes. Serling mm -hmm. was a boxer when he was a paratrooper in World War II. So in January of 1960, he cast a black man in a Twilight Zone episode as a boxer. Six months later, coincidentally, a guy named Cassius Clay wins the gold medal at the Rome Summer Olympics and is on the pop culture map as Cassius Clay. So Serling, in a kind of skewed, indirect way, forecasts that. And in my Twilight Zone lectures, like the one I'm, the webinar I'm doing next week, called Twilight Zone Ahead of Its Time, I'm going to be talking about the prescience of so many of Serling's episodes. It not only were ahead of their time, like he had an episode about what it was like to live during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it was two years before the Cuban Missile Crisis. He kind of predicted that. 
Do you think he was precognitive at all? I mean, so many things he did later actually happened. So I think Serling, when I say was a visionary, I think um, there's a great graphic novel out now by a friend of mine, an artist in New York City, teaches at School of Visual Arts named Corin Shadme, and it's a book called Twilight Man, and it's a graphic novel biography, but he oh, spends a lot of time on Serling's war experiences and how they informed what later became the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Because like an entire generation, he saw death as a young man that changed his perception. This is why that generation was not taught and trained to talk about what they saw. But people like Serling and Norman Mailer, great American writers. Look, we're just finding out that the man who wrote Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Uh, J. What's his name? Uh, Salinger. Uh, J.D. Yeah. Salinger, right? Mm -hmm. We're yeah, only Salinger. finding out recently, a couple of years ago, how much his World War II experiences. You know, back then, of course, they didn't call it post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. They called it shell shock. We're finding out only now how much his war experiences like Serling and Mailer and other people like that informed, they got it out cathartically through their creative work. So Serling and and Corrin draws this in the graphic novel. I mean, he was on patrol in the Philippines and a supply crate dropped by their own forces decapitates his buddy right in front of him. So imagine that. There was Gee, an episode. The guy ends up doing a show called The Twilight Zone. Hello, you don't know, you know, <laughs> Psych 101. Yeah. There was an episode of The Twilight Zone. I think um, Dick York was in it. Um, and he was able to tell before a person was going to die, like their face would shine or something. Yeah. You, and that comes you, out of Serling's war experiences. That's what I was going to yeah, ask. Yeah. That was his first Twilight Zone episode that was based on his World War II experience. The idea that a man could kind of tell when somebody was going to die. You got to remember, you know, I've never been in the army. I wouldn't know the first thing to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, can you imagine, you know, as a man, I can only imagine what I was like at 18, 19, 20 years old when you know that your buddy next to you might die in the next battle. And Serling ended up witnessing that just like every other man in the army did. And some men can deal with that and some men can't. And the point is, is it breaks a lot of men. Mm -hmm. Other men internalize it. Other men, it screws them up. They run the gamut of the human experience. But I think Serling was able to work those ideas out through his writing. And, and it became, you know, one of the early uh, Twilight Zone episodes that dealt with World War II and this idea of, um, I mean, that's a perfect extrapolation of a real world experience of witnessing death on a daily basis and not knowing who's gonna die into a kind of supernatural episode about a man that could kind of see death ahead of time in people's faces. That's almost the definition of the Twilight Zone. It takes a real world kind of concept and adds that metaphysical, that's the key thing. You know, it's got to be metaphysical for it to be a Twilight Zone episode. You know, there's one episode called Twilight Zone called The Silence, 
about a man that takes a bet with another man that he can't shut up for a year. And he goes in an isolation booth. It's one of the episodes I show next week in my webinar. He goes into isolation for a year to, pr to win a $500,000, which in 1961 was like $500 million. Right. If he could, and they would monitor him for a year, bring him his food, everything. And it was inside of a men's club. At the end of the episode, he succeeds. He doesn't talk for a year. And then he puts out his hand to get paid. And the older man that ran the bet said, hey, I'm a pauper. I never thought you would win. I don't got the money. Sorry. <laughs> and then the guy reveals he takes off his ascot and he had his vocal cords severed before he went into the year because he knew he'd never be able to make it. Oh. <laughs> no. Now, if I told you there are Twilight Zone fans that love that episode, why don't I like it at all? There's nothing metaphysical. That to me is what the Alfred Hitchcock episodes were about. Crime stories, right. people like that, you know, blah, 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 blah. That, that episode of Twilight Zone called The Silence to me is an Alfred Hitchcock episode because it lacks the metaphysical. So I don't accept it as a Twilight Zone episode. Well, let me but ask Sterling you. wrote it and gee, he was the, uh, in a sense, showrunner. I guess the producer, Buck Houghton, who should have rejected that script, but because Serling wrote it, I think that's how it got through. Yeah, let me ask you this. Um, you know, with yeah. the Twilight Zone and with the comic books, there's those were the places you had to go to back during that time to get some more of that metaphysical, supernatural, time travel, things like that. But sure. it seems to be very, very much more mainstream these days. So what has changed over the years for us to be more accepting of this now and you know, bring it more into the mainstream? So when I say I call Serling in the Twilight Zone the father of American popular culture, it's a bit grandiose, I admit. But what I mean by that is that if you look at our modern creators of science fiction, fantasy, horror, you name it, you got the Spielbergs, the Lucases, James Cameron, David Lynch, you know, and then their younger disciples like J.J. Abrams and yeah. the list goes on, right? But that initial bunch, the Stephen Kings, the Steven Spielberg, that initial bunch were all in their early teens when Serling came out with The Twilight Zone. And if you read Stephen King's nonfiction overview uh, called Dance Macabre that came out in 1983, and it's his nonfiction overview of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And he has a whole chapter devoted to the Twilight Zone. And he basically says, Serling lit, like, lit our minds. He ignited our minds to think along those lines. Serling made what used to be laughed at by Hollywood, science fiction. In the 50s, yeah. science fiction were the big stupid monster movies that were horrible. The great science fiction literature was in a ghetto. It was not accepted as real literature by American literary society. It was science fiction. It was pulp. It was junk to the higher literate. In the same way comics were considered junk by the fine art community. Right. And I've spent my whole career trying to fight that on the comic side. But in terms of, and then you get, you know, so, so Serling took these cloistered stories that only a cult loved and understood. The writers themselves were a cult in California, Ray Bradbury and 
and Matheson and the guys that would end up writing for Serling Twilight Zone. The point is, is Serling took these stories and he was a master adapter. Some of the greatest episodes are adaptations, not Serling originals. Hmm. And there's an art, obviously, to adapting a short story into what were essentially two act plays filmed for television. That's what the Twilight Zones were. And Serling mastered that form and nobody's ever done it since as good. Every Twilight Zone remake I think has sucked. Everything, the, the half hour anthology drama Serling created did it the greatest and nobody's ever duplicated it. They're like the Phil Spector, be my babies of American television. You know, What's Brian it? Wilson spent his whole career trying to do a song like Be My Baby. I digress. The point <laughs> is, is Sterling made serious science fiction on American television, this relatively new medium. He brought the concepts of other dimensions, alternate worlds, all the things we associate with Twilight Zone. He brought that to American television, to the American public. And in that public was a young Spielberg, a young Stephen King, a young David Lynch. Every modern creator of our modern American pop culture, their minds, their young minds were blown by Serling in the Twilight Zone and expanded pre-60s counterculture. George Clayton Johnson, one of the great writers in the Twilight Zone who later wrote on Star Trek, one of the great science fiction writers, he says, Twilight Zone was what it was like the marijuana of television. It elevated people's consciousness because it was a what if show. What if there wasn't racism? What if there wasn't bigotry? What if there was life on other worlds? What if we saw ourselves as a duplicate? What if we met ourselves as saw ourselves dead? Existential, surreal, metaphysical, existential issues of identity. I mean, very heavy philosophical. That's what my book is about. Yeah. Visions from the Twilight Zone. It's not, it's treating the black and white television images as black and white art photography. And it treats the dialogue and narration like poetry because that's what I felt it was. And this is the only coffee table book about a television show because the only television show you, you could do it about is the Twilight Zone. Um, the point is, is that's what Serling did in the early 60s. Who do you think influenced Star Trek the most? Roddenberry delivered the eulogy at Serling's funeral in 75 and said, and I'm paraphrasing, Star Trek would have only been a glimmer in his eye had it not been for what Serling did with the Twilight Zone in terms of breaking down those barriers from the Hollywood basically power people that had the money and the production to make those episodes. And um, that's that's how it happened. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Is there anything that you think comes close these days or is it just all copying off of old, you know, Twilight okay. Zone episodes? Well, it's not copying. Because a lot of people say they are influenced, so. Okay, well, in other words, the Twilight Zone influence is so pervasive, it's like the shadow. He's everywhere but nowhere. The Twilight Zone influence is so pervasive, and in my webinar on the 61st anniversary, October 2nd, I'm gonna be doing a webinar, and I show examples of Twilight Zone episodes and everything 
everything from modern art to movies to television to pop anything and i can trace the connection in what i call less than six degrees of surling hmm. nice. so you know what i mean it's everything from female robots to look black mirror is basically charlie brooker okay. in england doing his take on the twilight zone centered around a theme of technology run amok. Now there's a handful of great Twilight episodes, remember Six Degrees of Sterling, that were about technology run amok. <laughs> so Brooker, as one of Sterling's metaphorical children, or grandchildren really, right. has taken that and run with it. Black Mirror is the best of anything post Twilight Zone. The ones actually calling themselves Twilight Zone, I think of all suck, but <laughs> There are a handful of Black Mirror episodes that I believe are brilliant. That's the kind of homage I'm talking about. But like, I wish they would have given the new Twilight Zone to David Lynch instead of Jordan Peele. I think we would have gotten better Twilight Zone episodes from David Lynch's sensibility than from Jordan Peele's sensibility. You know, the Twilight Zone has to be in black and white. And that's, that's, that's so the other thing. When I did my book, I interviewed the director of photography to Twilight Zone, a direct descendant of Mark Twain named George D. Clemens, oh. Samuel Clemens. Yeah. He came out of retirement in 1959 to be the DP on the Twilight Zone. He had worked on the, on the lighting to a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1939. He was a Hollywood craftsman like they all were. Yeah. Buck Houghton, all the people. Serling was a creative like Orson Welles. He was the first auteur of television, and he drew to him like like bees to honey. Other creative people wanted to work with him. Why do you think the great Bernard Herrmann did the soundtracks to early Twilight Zone episodes? He was working with Hitchcock in Hollywood doing movies. He didn't have to do Twilight Zone for basically no money because they were always over budget. He <laughs> did it because everybody said, Hey, Rod Serling, the guy who won three Emmys, now is in control of a TV show. Not an account exec, not an advertising guy, not a suit, mm -hmm. but a creative writer who won three Emmys. Nowadays in television, the golden age we're in, every great TV show has a showrunner. The creative person owns or runs the show. David Chase with The Sopranos, and you know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. David E. Kelly. Serling was the first at a time when no other creative was in charge of television. Mm -hmm. But that's why great creative people, actors, um, so George Clemens, great Hollywood craftsman, is the director of photography on The Twilight Zone. And early on, he told me there was pressure for Serling to turn The Twilight Zone into color. Now, color oh, TV wow. in America didn't really happen until the Batman TV show. Up to and including 1965, a lot of shows were still shot in black and white. Mm -hmm. But maybe CBS was being told, pick a show to turn to color. Twilight Zone never had high ratings. It was a critic starling, but it had a round robin of sponsors. So maybe they felt, hey, we'll use the Twilight Zone and turn it into color and see what happens. According to Clemens, he objected vehemently to Serling, and he said, we can't give you the Twilight Zone feeling in color like we can in black and white. Yeah. Now remember, he's not an artiste, he's a Hollywood craftsman. But like most Hollywood craftsmen who are great at what they do, they are artists. They may not think of themselves as artists, but that doesn't matter. 
we can judge them as artists. That is a very artistic thing to say. It's and like what that shows, there's a total ambiance with that black and white. Yeah. And this is why I hate all the remakes. <laughs> They're all shot. They, the Twilight Zone itself is a black and white concept. Yeah. It's the middle ground between light and shadow. You know, in graphic design, we learn about the grayscale. A great photograph has blacks, whites, and grays. That's what the Twilight Zone is. People in the middle of reality and unreality. So between good and evil, between life and death. These are black and white concepts. So is the Twilight Zone like the 18% gray? You know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like the, the I have a concept film itself is black and white. Right. And well, even there's, yeah, go on. Oh, even Star Trek, um, the way they would, you know, do like the Dutch tilt and they would use the um, scrims. Yeah. To, you know, you'd always see the now, eyes. They, that's they what you're focusing color on. color what Twilight Zone did for black and white. Star mm -hmm. Trek and Roddenberry said, I bet you, he said, you see the way <laughs> Twilight Zone made an art out of black and white television? We're going to make an art out of color television. Mm -hmm. And I was just watching an episode tonight that I had never seen from the first season. Dagger of the Mind. <gasps> yes. And it's oh. so great <laughs> after 60 years to come upon an original Star Trek episode that you've never mm -hmm. seen. And the pastel colors and the, the beautiful pinks and blues. I mean, one of my future projects, I just might have to do it, is do a kind of visions from the Star Trek zone. In there a sense, go. what I did for black and white art photography mm -hmm. in my book, you know, Ooh. like treating these images as art, I'm watching Twilight Zone with my graphic designer's eye and go, and every image I'm imagining frozen as a double page spread or whatever. So I just might have to knuckle down and do that, even though that means hey, I got to watch 79 episodes. Like, <laughs> we got to put in the research, you know what I mean? But, yeah. but my yeah, point but is the Twilight Zone <laughs> did for color. I mean, Star Trek did for color and, and no modern creator entrusted with the twilight zone as a legacy has basically said we're going to do this in black and white because i think there's this prevailing feeling in hollywood that the young people reject black and white now i can't believe that if a young person is told there's this incredible tv show you gotta watch it it's brilliant oh by the way it's in black and white are you telling me that young people are not going to watch it actually when they're they told it's great they're actually not going to watch it because it's black and white. Do you believe it, that? It's true. Um, I did it with my daughter and her girl, girlfriend that was spending a night. They won't they watch teens. black and white. So you've got to. No, she would not. And her friend was. Even saying, hey, when told, it's great. I made her sit down and watch the day the earth stood still. And by the end of it, they were like, wow. Okay. Like, okay so, yeah, thank you. There you Remember go. Yeah. Clockwork Orange when they strap Matt yeah, down and yeah. pop his eyes open and force him to watch. Yeah, in the end, we have to force young people. But you mm -hmm. see, every now and then, there's a great video shot in black and white. Every now and then, there's a great commercial shot in black and white. Every now and then, remember a couple of years ago, there was that movie called The Artist that was shot in black and white, and it won Best yeah. Picture. Hello? So you're telling me that black and white is somehow 
this forgotten neglect art form that nobody loves anymore. Well, there are even I think we need to bring people. it back. Yeah, <laughs> there are plenty of movies out there, or even television shows that have such a drab and dreary color palette that it's near black and white anyway, and they do pretty well. Don't even get exactly. Yeah, it's not like they're making color art either. Yeah, I mean that's a whole not. But listen, there's a place for color, and there's a place for black and white. You know, as an illustrator. Sometimes you have to decide if the subject matter feels black and white, you do it and you make it work. But you know what I mean? It's like color and black and white are choices. They're not um, um, necessity, so to speak. It doesn't have to be in color. Right. I used to go around and shoot um, black and white and I'd have a red filter on so the clouds would pop and stuff. And people are like, "Why, God, that's beautiful. I mean, it's it's a tree. Okay tree of the cloud, you know, big deal. <laughs> but it makes you look at it. I mean, it forces you, it directs your attention. Well, again, okay, what you need to this see. is the art of black and white. Mm-hmm. And and it's, I just find it a, a real shame that there seems to be this prevailing attitude that you can't do it in color, uh, in black and white. If you're going to do Twilight Zone, it's got to be in color. Well, sorry, you know, I just don't buy it. And, and yet that's what is running Hollywood right now. We so need what to teach them to go back to the black and white. Well, somebody to has to be courageous and take a stand and <laughs> shoot it in black and white. <laughs> in a sense, sell it. Get millennials to go see it. I don't know. But I think it's more like the Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, we have to strap them down against their will and force them to watch great black and white. Some of them, not all. But, yeah. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> Well, uh, Arlen, we have about 15 minutes left in the show. I do want to. I told uh, you we're only going to scratch the surface. I know we are. We are. I do want to talk a little bit about your books and highlight those and uh, what people can expect if they you know go out. And we do encourage everybody to go to your website and check out your work. So, um, Great. of course, you have. Well, we can start with the Twilight Zone since we were on that. We then we can get back to. Um, okay, so the Twilight Zone's out of print. Okay, the version you're looking at is my revised edition that is finished but unpublished. Um, for X number of reasons, uh, it's been rejected by everybody, even though there's all this interest in the Twilight Zone. But who knows? Maybe somebody watching tonight is going to say, how can this incredible thing go unpublished? Yeah. But oh, it looks beautiful. That, I, I, at least the book that is in print is my beautiful comic book art history book, The Silver Age of Comic Book Art. That's a very nice book. unlike buying it on Amazon, when you buy it directly through my website, I've got a standalone. They're all linked. Uh, Silver mm-hmm. Age of Comic Book Art site. Um, you get, you get it signed by me. I sketch in it for you. So yeah, you could save money just like every author by going to Amazon, but Amazon makes all the money. So all of us authors, we have to be on Amazon just for the exposure, but nobody, no author makes money on Amazon. But again, it's a kind of necessary, not evil, but (laughs) we all need it. But like I said, you know, it would help me out the most if, if people who love comics, Listen, there's no other book like my book in the sense that, you know, I take out the original word balloons. I put the artist talking about the art. My book is like it's a giant comic book that you read, but it's also an art book and a history book because it's also about how the art reflected the 1960s. So, um, yeah, it's a beautiful book. Thanks, man. It's, it's one of my life's work. I mean, it's my ultimate. There was never a book about the art of in comics. There were text-heavy history books with miniature reproductions of the comics. And I'm 
I'm like a generation that became an artist because of comic book art. Right. And I was like, I have all the history books about the 1940s and the 50s. Where's the book about the era I grew up in, which is the era that all the movies and TV shows of today come out of? There was no book about not only that era, but there's no book about the great art from that era, which is, I believe, the, the modern art of comics comes out of the 1960s. The mm -hmm. art in the 1940s, by and large, just like fine art historians look at art and talk about the romantic and the Baroque period and this and that. Well, I look at the art and comics in the 40s with the usual asterisk exceptions as crude looking. Even as a kid, when I would look at this old reprinted 40s art, it looked crude compared to the stuff I was enjoying at the time. And I think history has kind of proven me correct in a way. When you look at the, the art in my book, the artists who created all the characters that they're making movies and TV shows out of today, that's where comic art matured and came of age. And it doesn't mean there aren't great artists today, but it was that initial burst of creativity that all of today's great comic artists from so many different styles all come out of you know even these underground independent guys that don't look a thing like superhero artists will say my biggest influence was steve ditko or my biggest yeah. influence was jack kirby even though you look at this the work they're doing it has nothing to do with superheroes that's the influence of the era that i'm basically just through my webinars like tomorrow i'm doing carmine infantino Wednesday, uh, Thursday, I'm doing Joe Kubert. Those are two of the eight artists in my, my book. So we got to make sure we plug those. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, we do have your uh, website down in the description below, arlenshumor.com. And I know our uh, chat moderator, Quarantine Ghost, has put it there in the chat as well. So thank you for doing that. But yeah, tell us about the webinars, because I did uh, take a look at your one on uh, Steve Ditko. I know you just had the one on uh, the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling. Yeah, so, so don't make me fish for compliments. Yeah. Don't make me fish for compliments. <laughs> what did you think of the Ditko No, I thought they were, I thought they were very informative. I. I <laughs> well, your singing was impeccable. What'd you say, my <laughs> You know, people listening in have no idea what you're talking about. Don't you got to give that a little context? Well, true. Okay. So when you started your uh, Steve Ditko webinar, you started off with the uh, with the old Spider-Man show, the the intro theme, and then you sang it showing your, uh, your artwork. Hold on. First I played over the tech specs the original Spider-Man theme from the animated right. show. Yes. Then I played, if you if you were there, the Ramones cover version. Oh, you remember that? Right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> yes. Then I, I come on, <laughs> and the system that New York Adventure Club uses it doesn't allow me to show images with music. So I figured you've just heard the original theme, but no images. You've just heard the Ramones theme, but no images. Now I'm going to show you Steve Ditko's Spider-Man images, but I can't play the music again from the from the animated show. So I had to sing it. You sang it, <laughs> and I sang it as Schmaltzy and as you know, uh, uh, what's his name, Bill, uh, the famous comedian, Bill Murray. 
Right. Remember when he started on Saturday Night Live, one of his early routines, he sang the lyrics to Star Wars like he was a lounge musician. You know, Star right. Wars, nothing but Star Wars. You know what I mean? And it was schmaltzy. So I sang Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Well, you describe it. Yeah, know, it was... It <laughs> I thought the webinar was, was very singing. entertaining and informative because <laughs> there are a lot of things that I learned about uh, Steve Ditko. And um, well, and really, there it seemed like, and I didn't know this before, the controversy there between Stanley and Steve Ditko uh, that I had no idea about, which was really interesting to me. Most people don't, and that's really, in a sense, the the sad truth about comic book history is that the average person, even the average comic fan, is so because there's never been a Ken. Burns multi-part PBS thing on comics. Every 20th century pop culture form was given its history. Movies, rock and roll, television, art, everything but comics. So yeah. the average comic fan and the average layman especially, they know nothing. They think comics just popped out of nowhere. They don't know anything about the art of Superman or how Batman came to be or Wonder Woman or anything. And that's the job of us sort of self-styled historians. You know, nobody came and patted me on the head. I had to make myself an historian. I recently got my MFA, but I mean, basically I'm the definition of the, you know, self-styled historian because I just did it because I love the art form. You know, I don't know how you can be an artist and love an art form and not be interested in its history. I'm sure every time Keith Richards mm -hmm plays a Rolling Stone lick, he knows the blues man that he's basically paying homage to with that lick. Bruce Springsteen is like a human jukebox of rock and roll. Yeah. Every one of his songs is a little bit of a pastiche or an homage to something from his past, something esoteric, but that he's paying homage to by taking that and manipulating it a little, which is what artists do. There's no such thing as something new and original. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything layman judges new and original is a new version of pre-existing elements. It's like the Reese's peanut butter school of creation. Chocolate existed, peanut butter existed, but Reese had to come along and put them and together, put it together yeah. and create Reese's peanut. So that's the definition of art. It's the definition of surrealism itself is the merging of two distinct realities. And when you bring them together, you create a third reality, which I maintain in my lectures and webinars, the Twilight Zone was surrealism on television. It took the real world, it took the metaphysical concept, <laughs> brought them together and created the Twilight Zone third reality. Yes. Okay. You with the um, blonde hair. Surrealism. <laughs> oh, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I, uh, the only blonde here. <laughs> That's not blonde. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, surrealism, the eye. The eye is in everything. What do you think the eye represents? Is it the eye of God? Is it seeing the internal soul? Is it the uh, Illuminati? How about the, what, what's all the of eye? the above? See, or the CBS logo. Okay, I used so to work for CBS. CBS logo how we, was designed we by William Golden, <laughs> and he was influenced by Magritte's 1931 painting called The False Mirror. Oh, okay. Which has the big black pupil, and then it's got the surrounding eye. 
and William Golden as a graphic designer that knew his history was either influenced or directly whatever. The point is, is the eye itself is all of those things. It's the eyes of the windows of the soul. It's everything. It's, it's what animation is trying to duplicate computer animation, but you know, the thing called the, the, um, what's it called? The Valley, the, uh, there's a phrase for when animation becomes so realistic, but right before it becomes almost human, it falls into this unreal look. It's mm -hmm. called the something Valley. Um, Mike, you don't know what I'm talking about. There's a phrase for that point in realism where since they can't duplicate real life, this is what Frankenstein is about. Only God can create life. When man tries to duplicate life, he can come close, but he'll always fall short. The legend of the golem from the, from the uh, Jewish legend from Prague from the 17th century is about the rabbi trying to protect the Jews from the pogroms summons a being out of clay, out of nothing, and imbues him with life. Well, hello, 200 years later, the legend of the golem from Prague, you don't think Mary Shelley might have been, been aware of that? Everybody, you know, they right. never connect the golem to Frankenstein. But the Frankenstein story is the golem. But the so, eye was used a lot in what, what? The Twilight Zone. The eye was used is so much in The Twilight Zone. is one of the ancient <laughs> oldest symbols. It does mean mm -hmm. all of those things. And the Twilight Zone uh, had two great graphic openings dealing with the image of the eye. When I do my webinar on October 2nd, I'll be showing all those images. I remember the eye. That's like one of the first things my I remember. First image, didn't I start <laughs> off this thing by telling you my very first visual image was the black and white mm -hmm. eyeball? Right. I was, must have been four and a half years old. That's one of... And, on my original edition of Vision from the Twilight Zone, this is available on eBay. You know, it's 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 out of print, but the hardcover version is hard to find. But look, yeah. there it is. <laughs> I had embossed the white eyeball on the black cloth. So mm -hmm. if you find this on eBay, it might be more expensive, but this is worth the price of admission. <laughs> yeah. See what I'm saying? It's but this is me as an artist paying homage to my very first visual image. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Awesome. <laughs> I'm living it, baby. <laughs> living the dream. Fantastic. So we're getting down to the end of the show. Where can everybody find the books and the information on the webinars and all okay, that fantastic so everything stuff? Everything from arlenschumer.com is connected. I have a blog page where I put all of my current events and you could buy tickets there. Uh, for my webinars, New York Adventure Club, nyadventureclub.com. Okay. Once you get to their site, you'll scroll down. There's a smorgasbord of their offerings. But you'll recognize my graphics. Nobody else is doing comic book history webinars or Twilight Zone or Jews and Comics. I'm doing a Roy Lichtenstein one in September. I'm doing a Bruce Springsteen webinar on his greatest single show, September 19th. I'm doing the 60th anniversary of the Flintstones on September 30th. Oh, wow. I'm doing the 61st anniversary of Twilight Zone on October 2nd. But God bless these webinars. Um, it's been my silver lining in this pandemic to be able. Yeah. These things I used to do live, but since that, that's been short-circuited, I've been able to work with New York Adventure Club to bring these webinars, and I love doing them, and people that come love doing it. So 
if you go to nyadventureclub.com, you'll get there. Facebook friend me. I post everything on my Facebook page. That's where I interact mostly with people on Facebook, even though I'm on Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. And I don't have pseudonyms. Everything is just Arlen Schumer. But um, I would say, like I said, you know, my own uh, website, Arlen Schumer, and make sure you spell it like Chuck Schumer and Amy Schumer, S-C-H. <laughs> I'm the third forgotten unknown Schumer. You know, they found <laughs> out they were related. Really? You know, Did you know Schumer's not a common name. We're, we're all from that Eastern European, Russian, Jewish. Mm -hmm. That's where all the immigrants came from in the late 19th century and early 20th. And um, for all we know, we might be related because every time I look at Amy Schumer, there's something in her face that looks like my side of the family. Oh, well. it's the eyes. Is it the eyes? It's the eyes. You know, it might. There you go. Well, the <laughs> eyes are usually the closest thing yeah. to uh, identifying parents and children. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so I wouldn't be surprised, just like they found out, because Schumer is not a common Jewish American name. There's only a handful of Schumers, so I bet you we are related. But I would love to be as well known as Amy and Chuck Schumer. <laughs> so help me get there. All right. Well, we my webinars, my book, you know, SilverAgeOfComparteArt.com. But again, ArlenSchumer.com has links to everything. So my merchandising site is called PopCultureMan.com, um, and it's got posters and T-shirts of some of my favorite illustrations. So. Uh, my whole life is out there. Are you kidding me? My whole <laughs> life is out there. Come All right. and interact with me. Be my Facebook friend. Join my, I run three comics history groups on Neil Adams, Jack Kirby, and the Silver Age. And I think they're the best comics history discussion groups on the internet. I mean, I know that sounds like I'm vain, but uh, believe me, if you know the level of internet discourse, trust me. Um, my groups, I think, are the best. And um, Well, you're a lot of fun to talk to. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> right back at you both. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Arlen, for coming on tonight. We had a great Thanks time. Like you, you said, just scratching the surface. By the way, yeah. I got your name down by the end of the show. You, you yes. did. You did. <laughs> or did I change anyway, it? Anyway, nice meeting you both. Anytime nice meeting you, too. you'd like you too. to talk on uh, to discuss anything and everything, I would love to. You guys are great, and thanks for giving me the chance to just wax poetic ad nauseum absolutely on the things that i know and love oh we absolutely appreciate nice you have a great you. night take care <laughs> bye guys bye bye bye